Want to know how to get the same cell coverage for up to half the cost? Well, instead of spending a fortune building and maintaining their own cell phone towers, Consumer Cellular just pays to use the same towers as the largest carriers and passes the savings on to you. Pretty smart, huh? Consumer Cellular. When Freedom Calls, we're here to answer. Call us at 1-888-FREEDOM. Half the cost savings based on cost of Consumer Cellular single-line 5-gigabyte data plan with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest cost single-line postpaid unlimited talk text and data plan offered by T-Mobile and Verizon May 2023. This is the American Veteran Show. Proud to finally say these two words. Welcome home. Dedicated to those who have worn the uniform. Tremendous national asset. Dedicated to our active duty men and women. They came not as conquerors. But as liberators. Dedicated to presenting issues, topics, and interviews highlighting their commitment to our country. I want to thank the courageous men and women who've served their country in uniform. Less than 1% of the population of our country chooses to serve our country in the military. And the other 99% of us, we owe them. Online at AmericanVeteranShow.com. Here's Stephen Tubbs. Welcome to this week's edition of the American Veterans Show, our first original broadcast of the new year. Thank you so much for joining us. We couldn't do this program without our presenting sponsor, Attorney John Boson at Boson Law, B-O-E-S-E-N Law, BosonLaw.com, fighting on behalf of veterans every single day. And now, as the clock is ticking to a deadline, fighting on behalf of those perhaps connected with Camp Lejeune. We'll talk more about that in a segment straight ahead on this week's Program. You can contact Boson Law at 303-999-9999. In addition to a segment on Camp Lejeune, as the clock is ticking down to a deadline, we'll also talk about, as we open the broadcast here, uh, the loss of a United States veteran. He was a member of the first manned Apollo mission, Apollo 17, and astronaut, United States veteran, Walter Cunningham. Next segment, we will take a look at what the United States government is doing as another donation gift uh, attempt to thwart the Russian advance as the war continues there almost a one full year period. Bradley fighting vehicles from the United States are headed to Ukraine. We'll talk about that in our next segment. And then we'll wrap things up. uh, Another look at the Apollo 7 mission and the late Walter Cunningham, as well as a tent, cold, a veteran. Ukraine and North Dakota. It'll all make sense as we wrap up the program. Thank you so much for joining us and Happy New Year. Coming up on one minute, Mark, T minus 60 seconds and counting. We are go for Apollo 7 at this time. This is the first man test of the Saturn 1B. Pressurized and the vehicle is go as is the spacecraft at this time. First Coming American three-man flight. T-minus 40 seconds and counting. First step in a All final series of tests to get American on the moon by the end of, of 1969. We'll get ignition of those eight engines in the first stage at the three-second mark in the countdown. Now T-minus 21 seconds and counting. We have completed our power transfer. The Saturn 1B launch vehicle, which now weighs 1.3 million pounds, is ready to go. Coming up on the 10 second mark. 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2. We have ignition. Commit liftoff. We have liftoff. Slowly 
Slowly. This is launch control. We have cleared the tower. Roger, tower clear. Five seconds for that sound reaches. The program has commenced. Love that old NASA audio from the 60s. Apollo 7 lifted off in 1968, and among those on board, Walter Cunningham. He was a United States Navy veteran. In fact, he joined the Navy in 1951. He began flight training in the early 50s, was an active duty fighter pilot with the Marine Corps from 53 to 56. He flew 54 missions as a night fighter pilot in Korea. And then he would go on to become an astronaut. We take a look back from NASA audio at that amazing mission. Four, three, two, we have ignition. Commit liftoff, we have liftoff. Well, look back to the period of time when our crew, it's uh, Molly Sherrod, Don Isley, and myself. When we got assigned to a crew, it was going to be the second Apollo mission. And the first Apollo mission was Gus Grissom, Ed White, and Roger Chaffee. We had the same kind of spacecraft. I'm taking over a mission that my buddy was not able to fly. That was a tough, tough one. So with that, we went through a lot of trauma. Gus, Gus would be the first person to say, let's get on with it. Do good work. And that was the kind of attitude I had going into Apollo. Apollo 7 became very important. If we had not had a success on Apollo 7, we really don't know what would have happened with the space program. Now it is time to take longer strides. Time for a great new American enterprise. Time for this nation to take a clearly leading role in space achievement, which in many ways may hold the key to our future on Earth. What happened with Apollo was an amazing series of events. We're trying to get to the moon before this decade is out. If you remember what Mr. Kennedy told us, smart enough to realize that going into space is, is different than just going up to 40,000 feet or going supersonic, none of those kind of things. And that's what appealed to us, I think, that we wanted to be part of that. We didn't mind working 80 bucks, 80 hours a week, because we knew we were going to do something different. Apollo 7 was in Earth orbit for 11 days. Today I would tell people about this, that was the longest, it was the most ambitious, and the most successful first test flight of any new flying machine ever. And it's still true today, uh, 50 years later. In its complexity and in its, uh, in its application, that uh, it has never been duplicated. That, and that, that happened, you know, two generations ago. What made it work was the teamwork that developed and the understanding of who was responsible for what. We as a team were, everyone worked, so it showed that uh, equality was necessary. We learned so much in science, space technology, 
computers, much smaller uh, semiconductors. All of this was from the uh, space program. Back then, the objective was to get there. Now our objective is to stay there. We're going to go with a sustainable architecture. The next frontier is going to have to be Mars. And there will come a time when humans will go to Mars. Given a clear goal, I think humanity can accomplish anything. Ronnie Walter Cunningham was born March 16, 1932, in Creston, Iowa. He died this past week, January 3rd. He was 90. He died in Houston. Four seconds out, and Shirah reports the pitch program has commenced. Five thousand five degrees. Roll complete. Forty seconds. The roll program is complete. Seconds. The cabin is relieving. Shirah reported a little noise. One minute. Again, love that old NASA audio. If you are a fan of space like we are on this program, don't forget so many, probably millions win total, so many millions of videos over the years, the decades from NASA and from Gemini to Apollo to the space shuttle to what they're doing today. So many videos available on YouTube. Rest in peace, United States Marine Semper Fi, Walter Cunningham, who passed this past week. You can find out more on his life, his website, WalterCunningham.com. Coming up in our next segment. Bradley fighting vehicles headed from the U.S. to Ukraine. We'll talk about that later in the hour. We discuss Camp Lejeune and maybe just give you another reminder as to why you see so many commercials and hear so many things on the radio about Camp Lejeune, because there is a deadline that is kind of approaching quicker than you'd think if you were at Camp Lejeune from the 50s to the 90s. So we'll talk about that. And then we wrap up the show, another look back at Walter Cunningham's mission, Apollo 7. We're off and running. This is the American Veteran Show. Happy New Year, AmericanVeteranShow.com. Now, back to the American Veteran Show. Here's Stefan Tubbs. Glad you were with us. Happy New Year to you, our first program in 2023. It was late last week that a weapons package from the United States headed to Ukraine was officially unveiled, and it includes about 50 Bradley fighting vehicles. That, according to the president who made the announcement in Washington, D.C. midweek last week, the package overall worth roughly $2.8 billion. What about those Bradleys, though? Here's a little history lesson. Why you can't mess with the Bradley fighting vehicle. The Bradley fighting vehicle is a combat-proven platform that provides outstanding survivability, mobility, and lethality, and is an integral part of the U.S. Army's Armored Brigade Combat Team. It was named after U.S. General Omar Bradley. The Bradley was developed largely in response to the Soviet BMP family of infantry fighting vehicles. The Bradley was meant to serve as both an armored personnel carrier and a tank killer. 
One design requirement specified that it should be as fast as the M1 Abrams main battle tank so the vehicles could maintain formation. The vehicle's reliability, survivability, and lethality has surpassed initial expectations. Of the 2,200 Bradleys involved in Operation Desert Storm, only three were disabled. In fact, more enemy armored vehicles were destroyed by Bradleys than by the Abrams main battle tanks. This is not simply a battle taxi. The Bradley is a sophisticated weapons platform capable of providing tremendous firepower in direct support of the infantry it carries. The Bradley fighting vehicle family currently consists of two variants, the M2 infantry fighting vehicle and the M3 cavalry fighting vehicle. Just as with its predecessor, the M113 family, the Bradley will eventually be the platform for a wide range of support vehicles. The M2 Infantry Fighting Vehicle, IFV, was designed to provide protection for those inside from small arms fire and artillery, as well as BGM-71 tow or Stinger missiles. The M2 possesses greater power, greater acceleration, and an advanced suspension for a significant increase in cross-country speed. The primary purpose of the M2 is to carry infantrymen on the battlefield and transport and support them with fire if necessary. The M2 Bradley carries a crew of three, commander, gunner, and driver, and a six-man infantry section into combat. The M3 Cavalry Fighting Vehicle, CFV, is exactly the same chassis as the M2 Infantry Fighting Vehicle, with some minor internal differences. Chain Gun Firepower The Bradley is equipped with the 25mm M242 Bushmaster as its main weapon. The M242 is a single-barrel chain gun with an integrated dual-feed mechanism and remote feed section. The gunner may select from single or multiple shot modes. The standard rate of fire is 200 rounds per minute and has a range of 3,000 meters depending on the ammunition used. Chain gun can handle just about any battlefield threat, opposing armored personnel carriers or infantry fighting vehicles, dismounted infantry, trucks, just about anything on the battlefield short of a tank can be taken out. In Desert Storm, one Bradley even took out a T-72 tank with that chain gun. The M240C machine gun mounted to right of the Bushmaster fires 7.62mm rounds. An anti-tank missile, too. But the Bradley didn't forget the fact that tanks are on the battlefield. It has a two-round launcher for the BGM-71 tube-launched, optically-tracked, wire-guided tow missile. Launched from a smooth tube launcher, the missile's wings and tail fins are folded inside its body until launch. Two of these missiles are carried ready to fire in a collapsible, armored launch rack on the left of the turret. The missile is equipped with a massive-shaped charge, high-explosive warhead, and is propelled by a two-stage solid propellant motor. The range of the tow missile is nearly 4 kilometers, and the missile will reach a speed of almost Mach 1 on its way to the target. The weapon is capable of destroying any tank in existence today and is deadly accurate. The Grunts the Bradley Infantry Fighting Vehicle can carry up to seven grunts in the back. What can grunts bring to the table? Plenty. 
With M4 carbines, M249 squad automatic weapons, M203 grenade launchers, M320 grenade launchers, the FGM-148 Javelin anti-tank missile, and a host of other weapons, the grunts can add to the vehicle's already impressive punch. Toughness The Bradley has not been easy to kill. During Desert Storm, only three were lost to enemy fire. In Operation Iraqi Freedom, about 150 Bradleys were lost from all causes. Still, the vehicle still allows the crew and grunts inside to survive. It keeps up. One problem with the M113 armored personnel carrier has been the fact that it couldn't keep up with the M1 Abrams. The Bradley never had that problem and was able to fight side-by-side side with the M1, allowing such feats as the 24th Infantry Division's advance of 260 miles during the 100-long ground war of Desert Storm. The combat record of the Bradley also speaks volumes. In Desert Storm, Bradleys destroyed more enemy vehicles than the Abrams. It keeps getting better. The Bradley isn't standing still. Like the M1 Abrams, it's received upgrades throughout its career. So before you dismiss the badass Bradley, keep these things in mind. The United States Army bought over 4,600 of these vehicles, and it has outlasted two efforts to replace it in the future combat system XM-1206 and the ground combat vehicle infantry carrier vehicle. Not a bad track record for this vehicle. Variants The M2 Bradley Infantry Fighting Vehicle consists of six variants, the M2, the M2A1, M2A2, M2A2 ODS, Operation Desert Storm Improvements, M2A3, and M2A4. The M3 Bradley Cavalry Fighting Vehicle is virtually identical to the M2 Bradley, except that it's equipped as a cavalry or scout vehicle. M4 Command and Control Vehicle, C2V. The C2V is based on the M993 M270 multiple launch rocket system, MLRS, carrier chassis, and is designed to provide an automated tactical command post and operations center. M6 Linebacker An air defense variant, these vehicles are modified M2A2 ODS with the tow missile system replaced with a four-tube Stinger missile system. M7 Bradley Fire Support Vehicle as the name implies, the M7 is a modified M2A2 ODS Bradley fighting vehicle that's been equipped with a specialized fire support mission equipment package. Bradley Battle Command Vehicle, BCV The Bradley BCV allows brigade commanders to move around the battlefield away from their command post. The BCV integrates an enhanced command and control communication suite to maintain digital interface with maneuver forces and the tactical operations center. M993-M270 Multiple Launch Rocket System Carrier Vehicle The M270 MLRS is composed of two major sections, a M269 Launcher Loader Module mated to a M993 Carrier Vehicle. The M993 Carrier Vehicle portion is a modified Bradley Fighting Vehicle chassis. Black Knight The Black Knight prototype unmanned ground combat vehicle being developed by BAE resembles a tank, and makes extensive use of components from the Bradley Combat Systems program to reduce costs and simplify maintenance. Armored Multipurpose Vehicle BAE Systems rolled out the first armored multipurpose vehicle prototype on December 15, 2016. 
Currently, 160 vehicles are budgeted to be produced per year, which is enough to field one and a half brigades. Fielding is planned for 2023. Once again, this military aid package, nearly $3 billion in total, will include an estimated 50 Bradley fighting vehicles. We're about midway through the program. Coming up in our next segment, you have no doubt seen the commercials, heard the commercials, maybe both, all about toxins that maybe some of our men and women who were at Camp Lejeune were exposed to. We'll talk about that as we are into this new year. Glad you're with us. This is the American Veteran Show, AmericanVeteranShow.com. Welcome back to the American Veteran Show. We continue now with Stefan Tubbs. Happy New Year, friends, and thank you for joining us on our first edition of 2023. I'm Stefan Tubbs. Pleasure to have you along with us. You know, one of the things that uh, we certainly appreciate on our program are people that aren't connected necessarily with the military, but they help our veterans. And Proof Positive is our presenting sponsor, Attorney John Boson. We're going to convince him, twist his arm to come on the program coming up within the next couple of months. But in his sponsorship, um, you know, he shows you that he cares. They fight on behalf of veterans every single day. Like I say, you can get them, by the way, at 303-999-9999 or bosonlaw.com. That's B-O-E-S-E-N law.com. The reason I bring that up, though, is I had a conversation with Attorney Boson uh, within the last couple of months, and he said, hey, one of the things we are really going to do in 2023 is really start to focus on those who may be owed compensation because of their exposure to toxins while they were at Camp Lejeune. So we'll talk with Attorney Boson coming up here on the American Veteran Show in the not-too-distant future. But speaking of those commercials, almost how could you avoid them? Attention, did you serve, live, or work at the Marine Corps Base Camp Lejeune in North Carolina at any point between 1953 and 1987? Contaminated water at Camp Lejeune has been linked to serious health problems, including cancers, neurological diseases, reproductive diseases, and many other health If you spent time on base at Camp Lejeune prior to 1988 and developed any of these cancers or suffered any of these injuries, you may be eligible for significant financial compensation. Leaking underground tanks contaminated the drinking water with benzene and other highly carcinogenic chemicals. There have been numerous reported cases. Hi, I'm Don McCarry proud veteran who's been helping Marines and their families for decades. If you were stationed or working at Camp Lejeune from 1953 to 1987, you may have been exposed to contaminated water that causes serious health issues. A new law proposes a multi-billion dollar settlement separate from your veteran's claim to compensate anyone that's been affected. If you want to see if you qualify, call us now. 844-400-5000. Again, it just almost doesn't matter where you are when it comes to watching television or listening to radio, certainly online, Internet ads. I can honestly say as a sidebar, I think because of the way I search for, say, stories and what I'm up to on my own Internet browsers, I think that the computer gods think I am a veteran who was at Camp Lejeune. I've done a lot of research on it, and I cannot tell you. I am not even exaggerating. I bet you I received more than two to three thousand thousand emails just in 2022 trying to convince me, though I'm not a veteran, uh, trying to convince me to call this attorney or that attorney. Now, in all seriousness, we know that this is not a nuisance. 
This is not just that's not all of what this is. This is very serious stuff. And that's why we'll have more coming up here in the new year. And next month, as we kick off season seven of the program, we'll talk more and focus more as we should on Camp Lejeune and those potentially impacted this from our partners at CBS News just within the last few weeks. About a year after he got out of the Marines, he started having problems with his balance, stumbling, uh, and then he lost his hearing. Patty Metzler is talking about her father, Dave. In the late 1950s, he spent 34 months at Camp Lejeune, a Marine base in North Carolina. On a driving tour of North Jackson, Ohio... We're coming up on the prison that I work at. Patty, a nurse practitioner, showed us where her dad once worked as a machine repairman. So this is the GM plant here. Until he got too sick, Patty says his failing health became a liability. And I know that depressed him because he, he went through a phase where he felt like I'm no longer the person to support my family. The U.S. government acknowledges that from 1953 to 1987, nearly a million veterans and civilians who lived at Camp Lejeune were potentially exposed to dangerous chemicals in the drinking water. In some areas, it was 400 times what safety standards allowed. There's a lot of pictures here. Dave filed a claim with the VA to connect his neurological problems to his service at Camp Lejeune. If approved, the Metzlers would receive much-needed financial support. He was denied in 2014 and again in 2015. He did get depressed. He got angry. And um, he did attempt suicide once. Fed up, Patty did her own research and got his case in front of a VA judge then waited. Based on your experience, is the VA system working? No, not at all. Um, It's completely failing veterans. Mike Wishney runs the Veterans Legal Services Clinic at Yale Law School. His students filed a lawsuit in 2016 on behalf of Camp Lejeune veterans, seeking more information about the doctors who review Camp Lejeune claims. They're known as subject matter experts or SMEs. Not all of them appeared to have the qualifications for the job they were doing. CBS News reviewed VA records and in some cases found general medicine doctors not experts. But after they started this program, the approval rate, which was already low, went even lower. According to government transcripts and documents obtained by CBS News, the rate plummeted from 25 to 5 percent. The saying is deny, deny, deny until they die. (laughs) Retired Lieutenant Colonel Mark Kottenauer, a lifelong aviator, is two years into his own battle with the VA to connect his pancreatic and prostate cancers with his service at Camp Lejeune. How many doctors have blamed your cancer on the contaminated water at Camp Lejeune? Seven. Seven doctors. Still... The VA denied Kottenauer's claim on the basis that their subject matter expert was more persuasive. Why would the VA side with a general medicine expert over a group of cancer specialists? They don't want to step up and do the right thing. Kottenauer is appealing and says it's not about the money. The Marine Corps and the VA needs to be accountable to the Marines and the sailors and all those people at Lejeune. And they haven't been. Are you expecting a decision from the VA in your lifetime? You know, my appeal now is 18 months old. I'm I'm hoping to hear, you know, before in my lifetime, but there's no guarantee. In Dave Metzler's claim, the subject matter expert specialized in preventive medicine. The subject matter expert 
that looked at his case knew nothing about neurology. In 2018, a VA judge overruled the earlier denials. On her dining room wall hangs the framed VA approval letter, granting her dad 100% disability. But Dave never lived to see this victory. He died 14 months earlier. About a week prior to his death, he was still lucid and talking, and I had some time alone with him. And he gave me a hug and said, don't give up. Keep fighting. And I promised him I would. Dave Messler's widow is receiving survivor's benefits, but the family is still fighting the VA over back pay. In a statement to CBS News, the VA says it's committed to the processing of all claims to ensure priority veterans are served as timely and accurately as possible. They also told us the doctors in these cases had, quote, appropriate credentials and received four hours of training on issues relevant to the evaluations. And while the VA acknowledges the average approval rate is now 17 percent, their own data shows that the approval rate dropped dramatically once they started using these experts. And more than half of the outstanding claims are now considered backlog. That from our partners at CBS News filed late last year. We're going to wrap up the program with a couple of smiles, a couple of accolades, and a lot of appreciation as we are here right now with you on a Sunday afternoon, our first program of the new year. We are glad you're with us. Remember to visit our newly improved website, AmericanVeteranShow.com. You can catch all the past episodes. If you are listening from our, our home base, if you will, 710KNUS in Denver, just go to 710KNUS.com slash Stefan. And when you're there, you'll see a link to the American Veteran Show and all of our past episodes. Once again, very proud to bring you this program. Almost each and every week, a brand new episode. Yeah, we have a couple of uh, weeks where we play our greatest hits, if you will. But thank you to our producer, Michael Arpaio. And most of all, thank you for listening. We'll wrap up this first program of the new year. That comes up next. This is the American Veteran Show, AmericanVeteranShow.com. This is the American Veteran Show, online at AmericanVeteranShow.com. Coming up on one minute, mark T-minus 60 seconds and counting. We are go for Apollo 7 at this time. This is the first manned test of the Saturn 1B. Pressurized and the vehicle is go as is the spacecraft at this time. Taking you back to 1968 and the first manned Apollo mission. Rest in peace to... Marine veteran Semper Fi to one of those three astronauts, Walter Cunningham, who died last week at his home in Houston. He was 90. In the first stage at the three-second mark in the countdown. Now, T-minus 21 seconds and counting, we have completed our power transfer. The Saturn 1B launch vehicle, which now weighs 1.3 million pounds, is ready to go. Coming up on the 10-second mark. 10, 9, 8, 7, 6... Five, four, three, two, we have ignition. Commit liftoff. We have liftoff. Slowly, slowly. This is launch control. We have cleared the tower. I get goosebumps. 
And this was a year before I was born. We wrap up the American Veteran Show by paying attention to an important story. When we lose a veteran, to me, that's one of the reasons we do this program. But someone like Walter Cunningham, who served his country so well, and one of those, do I dare say that not a lot of people know his story. And we're glad to bring that to you. Coming up as we wrap up the program, a United States veteran attempt, Ukraine, North Dakota, it'll make sense. But first, rest in peace, Walter Cunningham. This from a NASA documentary on Apollo 7. The astronauts were spacecraft commander Walter Schirra and pilots Don Isley and Walter Cunningham. The Kennedy Space Center had spent long days in preparation and checkout, working toward a launch time which had been set for months. It was not by chance that Apollo 7 lifted off only two and three-quarter minutes after the appointed moment. Five, four, ignition, GR. The Marshall Space Flight Center had spent years directing development and testing of the Saturn 1B launch vehicle. And it was not by chance that Apollo 7 was placed almost exactly on its planned trajectory into orbit about the Earth. You've got speed, Apollo 7. Thrust is okay. Roger roll, thrust. Roll, roll, roll. Very early in the flight, the general pattern of go for Apollo 7 was established in a conversation between the spacecraft and mission control at the manned spacecraft center in Houston, Texas. Right on the old button. Very good. Flight booster. Go. We appear we may be slightly marginal on the locks. We'll keep okay, stand by. Cut off. J2, cut off. Beautiful. Fido. Flight Fido, we're go. Go across, across the, the board. board. TMC looks good, flight. 25553. Five, H dot is minus four balls one. Uh, across the board. Seven. Uh, we have you go for orbit here. Go for orbit. Apollo 7 was also go for an exhaustive series of tests of its worthiness in space. One of the first things which had to be learned was whether the astronauts could control the spacecraft combined with the S-4B Saturn stage. A very similar thing would have to be done during the early phases of a lunar mission. The answer was not long in coming. Three, two, one, mark. S-4B test complete. Beautiful. Next, the spacecraft and S-4B stage were separated. The question now was whether the astronauts could turn their spacecraft around and control it to the degree required for future physical link-ups with equipment in space. For this, too, would have to be done in the lunar flight. And again, the answer was yes. Something that will not be seen in the lunar flight or in any other forthcoming Apollo mission were the panels at the top of the S-4B stage. They will simply be jettisoned in the future, but they drew comment in Apollo 7. And the small panel at the top, left and bottom are opened uh, at I would just be about a 45 degree angle and the small panel on the right is just opened to maybe uh, 30 degrees at the very best. Uh, roger. Looks like you're looking at a four-jawed angry alligator. Apollo 7 escorted its spent S-4B stage through space for perhaps 30 minutes, then departed. That's a bigger one, Tom. Rated now? Yes. It's absolutely beautiful here. 
The following day, Apollo 7 burned its spacecraft propulsion system for the first two times in the mission and returned to its four-jawed alligator, which was now angrier than ever. And Apollo 7, Houston, uh, how close are you now? Very close to about, uh, oh, about 70 feet. It's tumbling rather wildly, so we should have to stay away from it. In this maneuver, Apollo 7 had accomplished the first rendezvous of the program, and in so doing had proven capable of meeting still another requirement for lunar flight. 1618 Then, as we were to see in some of the most dramatic film ever returned from space, the crew would settle down to a weightless life in a spacecraft with four times more room than Gemini. That from an Apollo 7 documentary done by NASA several decades ago. And finally, switching gears. Don't you love veterans? Thank you if you are one. If you're not one, I hope you love them just the same. Oh, you lose In Fargo, North Dakota, where winter temperatures dip well below freezing, U.S. Air Force veteran Mark Lindquist is sleeping in a tent with no heating or electricity and just a Ukrainian song keeping him warm. Yellow tent and then I have a blue tarp on top. So, And I do have the Ukrainian flag hanging outside. I can show you that. Lindquist is thousands of miles away from Ukraine, but his Operation Sleep Out is aimed at providing humanitarian aid to Ukraine. He spends nights in a tent and travels to nearby towns and villages to collect clothes for Ukrainians and explain why it's important to help. This is what one man brought this morning. One man from Park Rapids, Minnesota. One man can do that. Imagine if we all pitched in. So I am challenging citizens to reach into their own pockets and support the cause of freedom like my grandparents did 80 years ago during World War II. After serving in the U.S. Air Force, Lindquist ran unsuccessfully for Congress as the only Democratic congressional candidate in Minnesota's 7th District. But everything changed for him after Russia invaded Ukraine. Lindquist came to Lviv, Ukraine for the first time just weeks after the invasion, bringing warm clothing and medication. Since then, he traveled to Ukraine a few more times, working with volunteers both in Ukraine and abroad. He plans to go again in January. As soon as we raise enough money and collect enough supplies, we go back and deliver it into the country. And we've been out in the Donbass. I lived in Kharkiv, lived in Dnipro, um, really been everywhere but Kherson and Odessa. Lindquist says his Operation Sleepout shows how hard things are for Ukrainians today. Whether they be living in Kyiv, living in a village or a trench, they don't get to choose. So I just wanted to show Americans with my actions uh, just how rough it could be and get them to think about the fact that there are people on the other side of the planet who don't have a warm home to go to. The city of Fargo in North Dakota is one of the coldest in the U.S. Nighttime temperatures here reach minus 30 degrees Celsius. Yet, Lindquist plans to spend 17 nights outdoors, regardless of the temperatures. Those who want to help Lindquist get a list of necessities from him. At the moment, his priority is orphanages in Ukraine. He himself was adopted by an American family from a sole orphanage in 1982. 
Oh, you lose each ever Nakalina, Pokulilasia. Punin Rishnova in New York, NRIs, VOA News. When Nasu Slavno Ukraina, that from the Veterans Affairs Administration and their media outlet. That wraps up this week's edition of the American Veteran Show. For producer Michael Arpaio, Stefan Tubbs wishing you a safe and healthy rest of your day, the week ahead, and we'll be back next week. Take time out and remember our troops and Happy New Year. The American Veteran Show is a copyrighted production of Mountain Time Media Group, LLC. All rights reserved. For more information, visit AmericanVeteranShow.com. And join us next week for another edition of The American Veteran Show. This is the smell of the leftover tuna fish sandwich you left in your lunchbox over the weekend in a wimpy trash bag. Wimpy, wimpy, wimpy! <sighs> and this is the smell of that same sandwich in a hefty, ultra-strong trash bag. Hefty, hefty, hefty! <sighs> Ah, smell the difference? Hefty Ultra Strong has Arm & Hammer with continuous odor control, so no matter what's inside your trash, hmm, you can stay one step ahead of Stinky. And for bigger jobs, try the superior strength of Hefty Large Black Bags.